0: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, and today it's a real honor to be joined by Brian Brooks, professor of English at West Texas University. The professor joins us today to discuss his 2022 Cambridge University Press book, Liberalism and American Literature in the Clinton Era. Dr. Brooks's research tries to account for the differences between contemporary American fiction and the postmodern writing that preceded it. His work explores how this literary shift intersects with broader changes in the way contemporary politicians, activists, and citizens understand the nature of social conflict. Professor Brooks, Ryan, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today about your new book, and your scholarship, which adds a new and insightful voice to the study of contemporary American fiction and its relationship to American politics more broadly.
1: Thank you for having me, Keith. Uh, It is truly an honor to be here. Uh, I appreciate it.
0: As a place to start, can you share a bit about West Texas A&M, the so-called panhandle And the kinds of courses you teach, uh, what kind of reading load do you typically assign? And how would you compare your reading habits with those of your students when you were younger?
1: Yeah, uh, so West Texas A&M, which we call WT, is a regional public university in the Texas Panhandle, which is the northernmost, most wide open, most conservative part of Texas. The Panhandle used to be known as the Great American Desert. And it was one of the last places in the U.S. to be settled permanently. Uh, we're actually closer to several other state capitals than we are to Austin. So we're way up here. The nearest city to us is Amarillo, but the area is still very rural. And our students tend to be from working class, you know, often farming or ranching backgrounds. And we have a fair amount of first-generation students. I teach primarily first-year writing courses in addition to literature courses for undergraduates and for our online master's program. You know, my students come in with a really wide range of reading experiences and backgrounds. You know, I've had everything from students who come in having literally never read an entire novel, or at least that's what they tell me. They also tell me, you know, in these rural schools, you know, maybe... Their English teacher was also their football coach. I've had everything, you know, students like that to students who shock me with the amount of stuff they've read and the kinds of stuff they've read. I've definitely had students who are at least as well read, if not more so than I was at their age.
0: Interesting. Thanks for for sharing that. You have a podcast yourself, uh, Humanities on the High Plains, it's called. Tell us about it a little bit and the people uh, you talk to. Is there a specific focus to it?
1: Yeah. um, So I started the podcast in March 2020 to promote humanity scholarship on the High Plains, which essentially, as I define it, the Western Great Plains. The episodes all focus on scholarship either being done in the High Plains by scholars at WT or at other institutions. Or scholarship being done elsewhere that I thought would be particularly interesting to local and regional listeners. I've primarily spoken with people in literary studies and history, especially regional political history, which is you know is an interest of mine. But but I also have episodes with philosophers, journalists, art historians, uh, Latin American studies scholars. In a couple of episodes, I've moderated interdisciplinary um, panel discussions on books of local interest, like Sarah Smarsh's memoir Heartland, which is about growing up poor in Kansas, uh, and Lucas Basir's Running Out, which is an autoethnography about the depletion of the Ogallala Aquifer. That's a local story that could potentially affect the entire U.S. Uh, that, that one was interesting. I got to talk to a bunch of actual scientists. <laughs> Basically, I think of the podcast as a way to support the sort of exchange of ideas on campus and a way of building bridges with the community. You know, I'm a non-native. I was brought here to the Panhandle by the, the vagaries of the academic job market. So I have a lot to learn about the area and the podcast is part of how I do so.
0: In fairness, I probably should have said that I'd listened to a couple episodes, including the first one and I have to say it's uh, quite engaging. Maybe um, talk more about that later. In your own book, you acknowledge the literary critic uh, Walter Ben Michaels. Do you mind sharing a bit of your relationship with him? What should listeners understand about his significance, both within literary theory and more specifically, how his work has influenced your own scholarship?
1: Uh, sure. So Walter Ben Michaels was my dissertation director, and this book is a revised version of my dissertation. So he was instrumental in it existing in the first place. As I mentioned in the acknowledgments, my committee also included Madhu Dubé, Nicholas Brown, and Anna Cornblue. And I was lucky enough to do my graduate work at the University of Illinois at Chicago, which is a fantastic public research university in a fantastic city. I can't really do justice to uh, Walter's uh, broader significance within literary theory and American literary studies. can't really do justice to that right now, but I'll just say that the, the aspect of his work that has been most influential on me is his critique of contemporary literature and theory's tendency to privilege identity over class and the power of subject position over the power of ideological beliefs. As I mentioned in the book, he was really influential in establishing neoliberalism as a lens for thinking about American literature in the early 2000s and for insisting and continuing to insist on the primacy of class and class politics, You know, especially you know, when it was much, much less popular to do so than it is now, I think.
0: Yeah, sure. And thanks for sharing that. Your 2022 book, again is titled Liberalism and American Literature in the Clinton Era, and will appeal, I think, to readers interested in a critical analysis of neoliberalism as reflected in the fiction and political discourse before, during, and after both terms of the Clinton presidency. You examine the work of authors such as Mary Gateskill, Karen Tay Yamashita, Jonathan Franzen, Colson Whitehead, Seshu Boster, and Joshua Ferris, uh, to name just a few. You open your introduction with an interesting piece of political observation as commentary by David Foster Wallace that some listeners may know from his Consider the Lobster and other essays, but was originally published in Rolling Stone in 2000 as "Up Simba." Long lead in here. Can you share with us the significance of your opening section titled, Try for a Moment to Feel This, featuring Wallace's Upsimba, comparing John McCain and Bill Clinton, and why this piece is significant for your broader thesis that a new aesthetic emerges in the 1990s, exemplified by the literature and authors you engage with uh, in your book?
1: Yes, uh, and thank you for the question. My response is going to be a little long as well. Let me start by saying that, generally speaking, the book sort of argues that and explores the way that American novelists participated in a broader political transformation that began during the 1980s and 90s. You know, when Democrats and other liberal groups began to embrace free market ideas, typically associated with conservatives. In fiction, this shift plays out in the form of that new aesthetic that self-consciously rejected postmodernism, an artistic tradition that focuses on impersonal systems and structures of power and representation. uh, Although, as we'll discuss, not necessarily class structures. In this new movement, by contrast, writers tend to imagine the world as a collection of individual persons. This is my argument. Individual persons, not big social systems or structures, and even when they do write about social relationships, they they tend to focus on things like families, communities, and networks, not classes. One irony here is that many of these writers understood themselves to be responding, as Clinton claimed to be, to Reaganism and free market ideology, or what we might now call neoliberalism, which they saw as intertwined with postmodernism. What I try to show is that by personalizing otherwise irreducible political, economic, and ideological antagonisms, by by personalizing these conflicts, these writers actually reproduce the logic of neoliberalism, which tends to transform market conflicts and ideological disagreements into matters of personal choice, personal responsibility, personal experience. The reason why the Wallace piece you mentioned gets such prominent placement in the book is that it brings literature and electoral properly, narrowly political politics together in a particularly clear way. Wallace was famously critical of postmodern irony, uh, as maybe we'll discuss a little bit further later. Uh, He was critical of postmodern irony, which he argued led to cynicism and social atomization. And this concern shapes his coverage of McCain's campaign in the 2000 Republican primaries. The premise of the article is that the U.S. electorate is suffering from what what Wallace calls a, quote, weird sort of knot in the electoral tummy, by which he means the emotional pain, hurt, sadness of being lied to by politicians, which he argues has led to, again, cynicism and disengagement. He argues that someone like Clinton makes the pain worse, you know, by famously promising to feel your pain, but turning out to be self-interested and deceptive rather than empathetic. Whereas someone like candidate McCain, in in Wallace's account, promises to soothe this pain by being someone voters think can transcend his own selfishness for various reasons. What is happening here, I argue, is that Wallace is transforming a political contest, which we can think of as a struggle between ideologies and interests, into a referendum on a candidate's connection to voters' emotional pain. So in other words, he's transforming what could be understood as an impersonal or structural relationship into something like a personal heart-to-heart relationship, something that we cannot even ultimately call an interpersonal relationship by the end, because ultimately he suggests that the question of whether McCain is sincere or not comes down to the tension between cynicism and sincerity in the hearts of individual voters. So in the end, then, the the essay actually reproduces, I argue, the logic of Clintonian campaign rhetoric in which he uses therapy speak and the promise that he feels your pain to justify policies like welfare reform, which other commentators described as a war on the poor, but which he described as a way to cure psychic dependency. This logic also serves to make ideological disagreements seem irrelevant. Uh, Wallace claims that McCain's actual ideological beliefs, quote, count for nothing, or at least secondary to the promise that he's going to heal voters' emotional pain.
0: There's a lot there, and I think we'll be able to dig into a bit of it uh, as we go on. Can you step back a little, though, and share how you understand the key concepts you're really working with in the book, such as postmodernism and neoliberalism? It seems fair to say the terms have spawned their own and quite separate cottage industries of critical commentary. How would you present these concepts to a general audience, and how does um, class struggle fit into it?
1: Yeah, so so when I have to define postmodern literature, I say that it emerged in the 1960s, uh, that it is mo- that is the most important non-realist experimental aesthetic in late 20th century literature, and that as a, as a distinct aesthetic, this is how I define it. It, It's postmodernism is characterized by an interest in the way that reality is, quote unquote, constructed by impersonal systems of meaning and representation, you know, things like language, stories, culture, media, technology, historical narrative. That's how I tend to define it uh, as an aesthetic defined by an interest in mediation. Politically, uh, postmodern writers tended to be more interested in the politics of representation, uh, subjectivity, and culture than that of class. And, you know, and as many critics have argued, their insistence on challenging totalizing narratives like that of Marxism can run counter to the kind of structural and historical thinking that makes class struggle possible. The post-postmodern writers, authors that I'm writing about, born in around the 1960s, they imagine they were rejecting or at least grappling with this kind of postmodern indeterminacy and irony, which has prompted some critics to describe these writers, these younger writers, as a kind of new sincerity. You know, that criticism is very useful and perceptive, But I argue that this literature is better understood as a kind of intensification of the resistance to class struggle implicit in postmodernism. What the postmoderns do by representing social conflict in terms of systems of representation uh, and truth as a product of one's subject position within these systems, this younger generation, I argue, does by personalizing social conflict and personalizing the truth. This, again, is the connection that I see with neoliberalism, which, you know, when I'm defining that to a general audience, I start by acknowledging is first and foremost a political and economic ideology. I say that the liberal and neoliberalism refers to classical, laissez-faire, market-oriented liberalism, so not necessarily liberalism as we typically use it in, you know, mainstream political discourse. The liberal refers to Classical liberalism, the neo refers to the idea that it's that that is back with a difference, and the difference is usually understood as the idea that markets have to be constructed by government rather than occurring naturally. The connection with personalization is that to embrace the free market in this way, neoliberals have to imagine the market as a collection of persons, uh, individual bearers of human capital, um, what Michel Foucault famously describes as little entrepreneurs of the self, Rather than imagining the market as a space defined by the conflict between labor and capital,
0: yeah, interesting. All sorts of threads there. Let me pick up with David Boster Wallace. Um, he figures uh, prominently in your introduction, as as you've talked about, including an even earlier piece than Up Simba, published in the summer nineteen ninety three edition of the Journal Review of Contemporary Fiction, titled e unibus plurum, television and U.S. fiction. And I mention it uh, because you draw on it as well when you point out that Wallace sees it as important to, and I quote, transcend our own selfishness and that we as individuals are not driven by profit, but rather, again, in quotes, a deep need to believe. Um, Why is this significant? To your analysis, and in relation to the cohort of 1990s writers you examine,
1: yeah. So, so again, Wallace was was famous for his critique of uh, postmodern, self-referential, metafictional irony in that essay, e, *E Unibus Plurum*. And as the title of the essay suggests, he claims that this irony, you know, insofar as it has been co-opted by television advertising was leading to the the fragmentation of American life. People sort of afraid to connect with other people, afraid to be sincere. And he ends the essay by imagining that a new generation of writers would emerge that would embrace sincerity and what he calls, quote, single entendre values. And it's easy to see that this same fascination with traditional values is what drew him to McCain and that other piece. McCain, he, he felt displayed things like, And these are all his words, Wallace's words, things like moral authority, service, sacrifice and honor. This is also another point of connection with Clinton, who in his speeches in the 92 campaign suggested that the best response to Reaganism is to rebuild, quote, American community through the practice of what he Clinton called old values or what Hillary Clinton called uh, in a 1993 speech, the politics of meaning. This communitarianism is certainly not simply identical with Reaganism, but it's also pretty compatible with it, as I try to show. In the literary realm, Wallace's critique of postmodernism was influential. Um, and you, you especially see it in writers like Eggers, Eugenides, Ferris. But to be clear, you know as everyone who has read his work knows, I, I think you mentioned you were familiar with the Pale King. you know, as everyone who's read Wallace's work knows, he does not simply reject experimentalism. Um, and start writing in a more traditional way. It's more like his work is predicated on grappling thematically, but also formally with the consequences of postmodern irony. Um, you, you see this even in a nonfiction text like Upsemba. I try to articulate what is post postmodern about that text by contrasting how he experiments with the second person, you know, a direct address, the you pronoun, um, in a way that is importantly different from how a writer like Norman Mailer experiments with third person in his 1968 book, The Armies of the Night, which we can describe as a postmodern text, a work of the then new journalism. So I I try to kind of show how Wallace's literary commitments are shaping even his his work of journalism.
0: Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that and that link with political uh, journalism more broadly, including Hunter S. Thompson. But You note that your book and its uh, critical inquiry uh, fills a gap uh, by its focus on representations of political struggle itself. Can you expand on that for readers in terms of the existing literature and context? You mentioned the need to take neoliberalism seriously and in turn pushing back against the contemporary trend what trend do you refer to there? And does it connect in some way to how your analysis uh, distinguishes itself?
1: Um, sure. Uh, I think at root, I'm trying to balance a Foucauldian analysis of, ne- of neoliberalism as a way of thinking about subjectivity with a Marxist analysis of neoliberalism as an ideological formation. The idea that, you know, David Har- Harvey famously said he wrote, Neoliberalism has functioned as, quote, a political project to reestablish the conditions of capitalist accumulation and to restore the power of economic elites. What the latter commitment means when I say I want to approach neoliberalism as an ideological formation, which is what I mean when I say taking it seriously, what that means is I am analyzing these literary and political texts in terms of their ideological content, Or, or in other words, I'm doing ideology critique. In this sense, I'm I'm pushing back against the contemporary literary critical trend known as post-critique, which is an umbrella term for various approaches, affect theory, actor network theory, um, for example, um, that seem to emerge, as I interpret it, in response to economic pressures brought to bear on the humanities in the 21st century. Essentially, post-critique seems to emerge as a new way to show how literature is both relevant but also not reducible to what's happening in the political realm. So in other words, it's a way to justify literary study as a distinct discipline. I'm sensitive to that, and you know my own interpretations have definitely been influenced by the work of some of the practitioners of post-critique that I discussed in the introduction. However, I also think that such criticism, when it's brought to bear on neoliberalism, tends to be defined by this the specific recurring contradiction between relevance and methodological novelty, which you see when you try to trace out how what they are arguing would actually work politically. What these critics say in the text they analyze always ends up being either relevant to the world of politics, in which case it's hard to see how what they're doing isn't just a form of ideology critique, or the analysis they offer is clearly different from ideology critique, but then it's hard to see how this analysis and these texts could be relevant to and make a difference in the world of politics. That's how This is the tension that, that I keep seeing. To me, this tension seems symptomatic of the same, I, I guess you'd call it ambivalence that governs the, the left liberal texts I interpret into the book. It seems to me these critics want to imagine alternatives to right-wing neoliberalism, but they also seem to embrace the idea that we live in a post-ideological world, where ideological critiques and ideological alternatives are not really possible. And I, I reject that notion.
0: Yeah, interesting. We'll bring that to bear, I suppose, later. Uh, the, the post postmodern writers that you read, uh, do you have a favorite or favorites between Wallace, Ellis, Ferris, Franzen? gateskill powers or yamashida just for instance and and i guess it goes without saying why and to what extent is there a tension uh, between the aesthetic and political ideals and preferences you bring uh, to the novel is that even a fair question uh given the diversity of stylistic approaches or how do you teach your students, for that matter, uh, to evaluate across the artistic diversity, both in terms of technique and theme?
1: So I think that's a classic question. Um, my my answer here is not particularly profound, but I think of what I do is teaching students how to make interpretive arguments. Well, you know what a text means, rather than evaluative arguments. You know whether it's good or not whether it works or not. And to interpret what a text means you you have to learn how to think about its both its form and its content. This distinction I've just sort of given, you know, teaching students how to interpret rather than evaluate, of course gets really fuzzy in practice. My aesthetic, you know, values come through in the texts I choose to assign in the first place, and of course, as you know, I think as we'll discuss, interpreting the political content of a literary text can shade pretty quickly into an evaluation of the political content of a text. That said, and I I think most English professors would agree with this, um, it's often really generative to teach texts that you find stylistically and or politically problematic in some ways. In the book, I describe Richard Powers' novel Gain as an exhilarating text to think with and even though I find its political vision ultimately problematic, and I think that might be the best way to answer a question like this. David Foster Wallace's work has been important to me and exhilarating to think with since I was an undergrad in the 90s, <laughs> and that remains true, um, though, though not necessarily in a celebratory way. The same is the case with the Fran- you know, Franzen's Corre- The Corrections, Yamashita's Tropic of Orange, and Ferris's Then We Came to the End. Um, great text to think with even if I sort of kind of point out problematic things about their political visions.
0: Fair enough. Sorry to put you on the spot with that. I think our own individual imprints have a lot to do with, you know, how we respond to the literature that's out there. In 2002, Jonathan Franzen pulled together and reworked some 14 shorter pieces into a 300-page book titled... How to Be Alone. He opens it with a word about this book in which he talks about a 1996 Harper's essay he wrote, which upon rereading for inclusion, he noted, and I quote, I found an essay evidently written by me that began with a 5,000 word complaint of such painful stridency and tenuous logic that even I couldn't quite follow it. In the five years since I've written the essay, I'd managed to forget that I used to be a very angry and theory-minded person. Franzen points out he then reworked the piece for clarity and this transformative process conferred more broadly on the other essays in the book with the intention of it as a record of a movement away from an angry and a frightened isolation toward an acceptance, even a celebration of being a reader and a writer. I wanted to open with this as a as a lead-in to invite you to share your analysis of the exchange between the seemingly uh, more avant-garde writer Ben Marcus and and the more mainstream Jonathan Franzen. Marcus had written a 2005 piece in response to Franzen's essays, including one from the collection I I just mentioned, How to Be Alone, titled Mr. Difficult, in which, as you know, Franzen questioned the value of difficult fiction with reference to the over 900-page novel The Recognitions by William Gaddis. Can you share with listeners your analysis of the exchange between these writers, the rhetoric about reader-writer and the contract model as Franzen refers to it? How did you come to conclude in your book that, and I quote, one of the most high-profile literary debates of the last 20 years turns out to be a way of making genuine artistic disagreement impossible.
1: So Franzen is famous for writing these essays in which, as you just said, he he dramatically repudiates difficult postmodern writing like that of Gaddis, and in which he declares his affinity for more traditional realism. And he justifies this by invoking the notion of an authorial contract. He, he writes, and this is me quoting him, every writer is first a member of a community of readers, and the deepest purpose of reading and writing fiction is to sustain a sense of connectedness, to resist existential loneliness, and so a novel deserves a reader's attention only as long as the author sustains the reader's trust, end quote. Now, you'd expect Ben Marcus, you know, as a sort of experimentalist to reject this idea of an authorial contract, or at least I would expect him to reject it. You'd expect him to defend the right of experimental novelists to be indifferent to or even actively hostile to the interests of the reader. But instead, he defends experimental literature essentially in the name of a contract with his particular readers, who are not superior, he says, just simply different. Ultimately, the the debate seems to resolve into a kind of consensus in which the role of an author is to maintain his particular community or kind of reader, a view which says not only that different kinds of writing can coexist, but that they must coexist, that there be as many styles of writing as there are kind of reader or kind of person, as, as Franzen puts it. This pluralist communitarian logic is is what I mean when I say that it makes genuine artistic disagreement impossible. This consensus also proves to be hard to distinguish from a free market vision in which these different types of readers are simply different, you know, niche market market segments. Um, even though Franzen tries to explicitly distance himself from that view,
0: you had opened your chapter two with the Franzen Marcus debate. And this leads into more interesting contrasts as you extend your analysis, writing, and I quote, that the fiction and criticism of writers like Franson, Marcus, and others who tend to imagine social relations, including the relationship between authors and their readers in terms of the family or in terms of collectives that function. Like families held together by emotional and ethical bonds, what politicians call family values can be contrasted with an approach by an, another group of writers, Vermontes, Sapphire, Dennis Cooper. Can you share the significance of the contrast between how you categorize these writers and their work in relation to the family values? And neoliberal discourses.
1: Both Franzen and Marcus uh, are committed to their community of readers, as we've just discussed. But they also both put families at the center of their narratives. And their novels suggest a vision in which family values are more important than aesthetic and political antagonism. I mean, this is true, even though you know Marcus says that families are the most traditional subject matter in American fiction. He's an experimentalist, and yet he essentially puts the story of a family falling to pieces at the heart of his uh, book, Notable American Women. I show how the same kind of thing is true for a number of self-consciously post-postmodern writers, in that this focus on the family generates interesting new literary forms, uh, but it also cuts across the divide between realists and experimentalists. Uh, It includes writers like Dave Eggers. Jeffrey Eugenides, Amy Bender, and Amarillo native George Saunders. To show how the consensus operates in the realm of the properly political, I analyzed the rhetoric in both Hillary Clinton's It Takes a Village and Rick Santorum's um, wonderfully titled rejoinder It Takes a Family. Uh, I try to show that despite their differences, both politicians, Democrat and Republican essentially agree that the role of government is to strengthen families, not through economic redistribution, but through the strengthening of family values, you know, which is why in in part that the '96 reform bill, welfare reform bill, is celebrated in both of those books. At the end of this chapter, I contrast all that with how the family is invoked in in a 30s proletarian text, like The Grapes of Wrath, and in books, By those three authors you mentioned, um, Viramonte, Sapphire, and Dennis Cooper. I argue that though all three have been been read as offering critiques of sort of the normative thrust, the neoconservative thrust of family values discourse, they've all been read as critiquing that normative thrust, and, and actually Sapphire and Cooper have been controversial for this reason. What really marks them as different in my view is that, like Steinbeck, they use family energy to insist on Irreducible structural antagonisms, uh, whether th- those uh, in the marketplace, you know, in in Veramontes and Sapphire's work, or those intrinsic to the relationship between desiring and desired in Cooper's work.
0: At one point, I recall that you point out that your political sympathies lie with the cohort of writers that contest what Mary Gateskill describes as a frantic twist to the right, the so-called neoliberal turn. Can you share with uh, listeners some highlights of these writers and what sets their unique narratives and radical commitments apart?
1: Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, It's interesting in a way, all of the novelists are sort of imagining themselves Contesting this frantic twist to the right, as as Mary Gateskill puts it, um, I, I guess I argue that some are, are more alternative or more different than others. Uh, and this group of writers includes the the three that we just discussed: Viramonte, Sapphire, and Cooper. But also writers like Brad Easton Ellis, Richard Price, Colson Whitehead, and the filmmaker Alex Rivera. What sets them apart in my account is that they all insist on the irreducibility of political struggle under capitalism, though they do so in a very wide variety of ways, you know, as we'll discuss more when we get, as we move further, further along in individual chapters. What also sets them apart in, is that in, in insisting on this irreducible antagonism, many of these writers point to new forms of potential solidarity as well. For example, solidarity among cops, criminals, and the working poor in Richard Price's Clockers. Or solidarity among city employees and welfare recipients in Sapphire's novel, Push. Or uh, among various types of node workers in Rivera's science fiction film, Sleep Dealer.
0: You cover a lot of ground threading neoliberalism and literature. Readers will appreciate your thorough notes, all of which uh, makes for interesting reading, whether when it comes to your book, from a uh, literary studies, or politics and policy base. Do you mind stepping back a bit to the more theoretical underpinnings of your work? You mentioned that you take a materialistic perspective. Can you talk a bit about, How that informs your analysis? You figure in the late 70s Foucault lectures on neoliberalism that had drawn on Nobel Laureate Gary Becker's work on human capital and public choice theory. What's the connection, as you describe it, with the New Democrats of your title's Clinton era? I realize there's a a lot there already but all related, uh, I think, to the foundational notions of neoliberalism. And while you mention a number of scholars in this area, William Davies' 2014, the limits of neoliberalism being one of them, in which the nudge theory comes up. Is it helpful to work that into your explanation? Perhaps too much. Uh, Share what you think best. Uh, the point being, at least partly, that the backdrop of your argument is relevant to the connections you make throughout the book.
1: Well, I appreciate the question, Keith. And so let me let me just start by sort of explaining how I'm drawing on Foucault. Um, it, it, in the birth of the biopolitics lectures, which came out in, in the late 70s, or which right, I guess I should say he, he delivered in the late 70s, Foucault argues that uh, Gary Becker's work on human capital is important because it was A, an expansion of economics within its own domain, and B, an expansion of economics outside of its domain. By expansion within its own domain, Foucault argues that economists took one pre-existing approach to economics, You know what he describes as the, the neoclassical approach that focuses on analyzing activity in terms of choices, pursuit of utility. Um, and applied it to labor economics. So instead of thinking of wages as the price you sell your labor power, you think of them as a return on investment in your human capital, with your human capital being your skills and abilities, and investment in human capital primarily being in education and training. By expansion outside of its own domain, Foucault meant that Income was expanded to include not just actual you know, monetary income, but also what Becker calls psychic income, non-monetary satisfactions you get from a choice. And investment in your human capital was expanded to include not just education or training, but really anything, including things like lectures on literature. That's a Gary Becker example, since those could, in theory, make you a better worker or at least provide psychic income. Foucault argues that what these expansions meant is that human capital can function as a whole economic theory of human behavior, which is, of course, another Becker title. It seems to me that the the vision of subjectivity Foucault is describing here is implicit in many of the policies that would later define neoliberalism. Cuts in spending can be justified if one makes the case that poor people are poor because they made bad choices like failing to invest in their human capital, or even that they are poor by choice, since a loss of monetary income can be described as a choice to pursue psychic income instead. At the same time, this view of the subject assumes that both individual and aggregate well-being will be maximized if individuals are allowed to choose freely, liberated from high taxes and government interference through things like deregulation and you know, privatization, market liberalization. As I suggest in the book, liberal writers and thinkers, uh, including the new Democrats, have tended to be at least rhetorically more sensitive than conservatives uh, to the factors that might cause, you know, number one, bad or irrational choices. Uh, Number two, to the fact that not all individuals have the same range of choices. And number three, to the importance of social, not just personal responsibility. Nevertheless, all of these positions still tend to locate the cause of economic outcomes in something embedded in or embodied in the person, rather than in collective structural antagonisms. I mentioned Davis very briefly because it seems like he's making a similar point. Behavioral economics, or, or what he calls the, the neo-communitarian mode of subjectivity, is structurally equivalent to the neoliberal mode in the sense that it assumes that choice, you know, whether rational or irrational, is is at the heart of how the market works.
0: Thanks for that. Well, as you wrote, introducing your chapters at the end of uh, your introduction, it begins by exploring texts, as you point out, that articulate differences, continuities, and historical. Transition between Reaganite neoliberalism and Clintonian neoliberalism. Can you share some of how Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho figures into chapter one and how you draw on Joe Klein's primary colors? But the emphasis, as you know, in the chapter is on Mary Gateskill's two girls, fat and thin. And clearly, the veiled and rend references are relevant. Can you describe these books briefly, and what makes Gateskill's book the central focus of your chapter?
1: Sure. Uh, the the first thing I do in this chapter is to set up a comparison between Patrick Bateman, you know, the rich su- yuppie psycho an American Psycho, and the uh, empathetic misty eyed image of Clinton created in his speeches and in texts like Primary Colors. Primary Colors is a clef about the 1992 presidential primaries. So I set up a contrast between Patrick Bateman and Bill Clinton. In American Psycho, which was published in 1990, Bateman is explicitly paralleled with Ronald Reagan, and his violent indifference to the feelings of others is often read as a figure for the economic violence of Reaganism. That's almost the kind of critical commonplace. So, uh, you know, Bateman is unfeeling, whereas Clinton could feel your pain. And yet with his 1996 welfare reform bill, I'm arguing that Clinton is essentially saying the same thing to poor people that Bateman says an American psycho, namely, to quote the psycho, get a goddamn job. That to me seems to be the message that they they both have. Clinton justifies these policies in a way that suggests the influence of contemporary therapeutic discourse, and I spend most of the chapter showing how this discourse also shapes the late '80s, early '90s work of, of Mary Gateskill, uh, an essayist and the author of stories like *Secretary*, uh, you know, on which the movie was based, and the novel Two Girls, Fat and Thin*. And I, I, I focus more on her. Her work has been much less explored in the context of neoliberalism than Ellis. I read her work as an intervention in what were then contentious debates about female masochism, sexual harassment, and campus sex codes. Basically, I show how Gateskill positions herself between those who argue that women's sexual consent should be understood as coerced uh, because of gendered asymmetries of power, and on the other hand, those who argue that this consent should be considered free and rational. Gatesfield kind of triangulates. Uh, She suggests that instead, young women often make irrational choices because they don't value what she calls, quote, their own internal experience of the world. A lot of her work is about insisting that people value their own experiences. I argue that such statements reflect the influence of the self-esteem movement that blossomed, you know, the 80s and 90s. And, you know, movements which were controversial at the time to a lot of feminists, precisely because they seem to direct attention to personal development rather than to collective action. This personalizing logic is really explicit in her novel, Two Girls Fat and Thin, which what could very well be understood as an ideological disagreement about capitalism. There's a tension between a left-leaning journalist and a follower of a very, very, very thinly veiled, I'd say transparently veiled version of Ayn Rand, So that, you know, there's this conflict that could be understood ideologically. Instead, it proves to be a product of the two women's failure to come to terms with their own emotional experiences, which is like a plot resolution that is essentially a way of symbolically resolving broader political conflicts. That's sort of my claim about Gatesville.
0: Well, what do you think, uh, because you also bring up the Me Too movement in relation to uh, Lewinsky and clinton of course and you tie that back into gateskill's short story the secretary but i think yeah. her her work more broadly
1: yeah i mean and i bring in lewinsky um lewinsky's statements about her affair with clinton are interesting because she's talked about how in the 90s it seemed important to her to insist that she was not you know, not a victim in that situation. Whereas more recently, she's written about how she sees there was, you know, just such an asymmetry of power between her as an intern and Clinton as president, that it certainly complicates notions of consent and choice. And I think Gateskill seems to be, you know, her work sounds a lot like how Lewinsky sounded, you know, in the early 90s, where it seems Gateskill is interested in resisting what she can considered notions of victimization and sort of insisting on the power of women, you know, that women were as free as men. although she does, again, it does acknowledge the way that, you know, irrational choices can be made because she argues young women, you know, aren't taught to value their own experience. So that's mm-hmm. sort of her, her position. That's the kind of connection with Lewinsky that I was tracing out.
0: Sure. Let's move on though. The implications and the discourse of family values and neoliberalism you shared with us uh, was the interesting focus of your second chapter. I want to ask you now about Richard Powers and his novel, Gain, which figures prominently in your third chapter titled Post-Political Form. You devote considerable space to Powers here. Uh, What's the significance of this novel and Why contrast it with Colson Whitehead's Apex Heights, The Hurt?
1: This response is going to be a little bit long-winded because the Gain is such a complicated, uh, ambitious book. Sure, Gain is a novel. It's from ninety-eight, and it's made up of two storylines. One is the history, the long history of a corporation, a fictional corporation. The other is about an Illinois woman who gets sick, probably because of pollution by that corporation. You can think of this structure as dramatizing the tension between corporate shareholders on one hand, you know, those who profit directly, and corporate stakeholders on the other. Um, Corporate stakeholders, you know, as that term is often used, is to designate those who are affected in other ways. One of the most striking features of the book is that the two storylines never intersect, in the sense that the characters in one storyline never interact with the characters in the other. This gap seems to suggest among other things that the conflict between the two groups is really just a matter of misunderstanding and misperception as the characters collectively fail to understand that this is a system which ultimately threatens life human life itself in an ecological sense it's a system that as the narrator puts it at one point quote all mankind became stakeholders this way of representing global capitalism is quite powerful but it also seems to disavow. I argue the, the real conflict between stakeholders and shareholders. Shareholders, you know, often benefiting directly at the expense of mere stakeholders. I argue that the same disavow of conflict is implicit in stakeholder activism and other, you know, liberal non governmental political movements that flourished during the 1990s in response to both the rise of transnational corporations, but also the right-wing critique of of government. Instead of imagining a government whose actions are necessarily an extension of economic class conflict and whose role is to protect the victims of capitalism, these movements imagine a government that can somehow coordinate these economic interests from the outside in a way that's supposedly mutually beneficial for all. This is why these movements thought they could be political without being governmental a vision that I think is better described as post-political. My my other claim about game is that in disavowing class conflict, in suggesting that misperception is at the root of social problems, and in self-consciously putting the reader in the in the unique position to perceive this misperception, which the characters cannot, the novel is in effect imagining the political realm in the same way as stakeholder activism in the same post-political way. So I end, as you said, by comparing Gain with Colson Whitehead's Apex Hides the Herd, because that novel is about another consequence of the rise of transnational corporations in this decade. Apex Hides the Herd is from 2006, but it's about the consequences of the rise of transnational corporations around the turn of the millennia. The consequence of local governance that is increasingly predicated on attracting and even emulating these these corporations. So like corporate governance in a different sense. Apex Hides the Hurt is a, you know, it's a wonderful little novel about a nomenclature consultant, which is a branding expert who comes up with names for new, new products. He's hired to rename a small town. And I argue that the resolution of the novel essentially stages a rejection of corporate governance, a rejection of the impulse to you know, allow profitability instead of, say, equitability to, to drive governance. What I mean in part is the name he picks is the name he picks for the town. The new name is Struggle, which is the forgotten suggestion of an ex-slave who actually founded the town and which names the very thing hidden by corporate governance and non-governmental politics. Uh, it's it seems to symbol the very thing that um cannot be spoken by um by neoliberalism. And so I think I, I think it's that book provides a dramatic contrast to gain,
0: no, interesting. And gain in itself is uh, is an expansive piece of work,
1: incredibly ambitious, but I find his political vision distinctly rooted in its time. I feel that he disavowed class conflict in a way that resonates I think with a lot of you know you could say members of the professional managerial class people like you like me um it, he, he's his work is very compelling in terms of framing the the contradictions of corporate capitalism uh, or the way that sort of these contradictions just keep re- reappearing again and, again and again and again over the course of the history of uh, American capitalism um, he, he's brilliant in articulating the the ways that corporations, especially chemical corporations, can produce surplus life, and I, I'm sort of drawing here on a critic named Melinda Cooper, they can produce surplus life, but only at the cost of producing surplus wasted life, mm. subtracting life. He, he's really uh, brilliant in articulating those contradictions. I just think the way he ultimately frames how politics works sort of undercuts the idea, the vision of like that we can do it, do something about it.
0: Is it fair to say that, like, Richard Powers, in terms of his focus on scientific technical detail, is akin to, say, uh, Neil Stevenson, in terms of how they delve into the detail? Is that a fair analogy?
1: You know, I think... Powers doesn't necessarily write science fiction, but he is a he's a thinker of of technology and science, probably in the same way as Stevenson. And it is very true that you know a writer like Powers is, in a certain sense, very different from a writer like Franzen. Franzen is very mm. character focused, whereas someone like Powers is sort of you know been criticized for focusing much more on sort of these systems and technologies, and and maybe maybe even like aesthetically producing you know, characters that lack a certain depth around roundness. Right. so 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 those two are kind of i can see a contrast there which is why i think at some point i say in my introduction you know like fran the, the writers sort of have friends and ilk uh, of their ilk are like more directly um you can make more direct connections with with neoliberal personalization nevertheless people like you know powers you know i i argue that they essentially kind of reframe, you know, these systems writers, um, a, a term a critic named Tom Clare, Leclerc used. They end up personalizing in a different way because they essentially frame things in terms of the relationship between the individual and the system without the, the mediation of class cutting across it. You know, I was influenced by some of the writings that there's a Marxist critic named George Lukacs. He has these very interesting accounts of how modernism and naturalism, even though they seem like antitheses of each other, you know, modernist, modernist writing focused very much on subjectivity, naturalist writing focused very much on presenting objective portraits of systems at work. They, they seem like opposites, but in a way, because they sort of collectively disavow, you know, the power of struggle, actually end up being basically versions of each other. And I think there's a certain sense in which, you know, friends and versus powers, for instance, is kind of like the, uh, an equivalent of that. Where they're they're different, but the difference ends up pointing to some sameness.
0: Thanks for that, Ryan. An interesting connection. Your last chapter, uh, Super NAFTA versus El Gran Mahado, alternative fictional realities and the fight for free trade, with its reference uh, to a key part of Karen Te Yamashita's Tropic of Orange, has a lot to offer as you focus on the debates about free trade and transnational labor and juxtapose alternative fictional realities, as you put it, uh, with books by Seshu Foster and Yamashita, uh, with Joshua Ferris and even uh, Robert Reich, among others. Can you give us an idea of your analysis there and how Alex Rivera's 2008 film Sleep Dealer fits in.
1: One of the most important moments in the in the three mar- the free market turn I've been describing so far in the interview here, one of the most important moments kind of like a signpost moment was Clinton's signing of NAFTA in 1993, which put him at odds with American unions, uh, a lot of old school Democrats in the House. Uh, and critics concerned about NAFTA's effect on uh, Mexican farmers, workers, and indigenous populations. Yamashita's Tropic of Orange, which was published in 97, seems to kind of participate in this anti-NAFTA discourse. So it depicts a huge wave of Mexican migrants displaced by trade liberalization and, and driven to Southern California in search of work. In fact, the novel explicitly parodies NAFTA. But I argue it nevertheless characterizes the fight you know, over free trade and, and the fights that result from it in the same terms as liberal supporters of the agreement, people like Clinton's labor secretary, uh, Robert Reich. His book from that decade, The Work of Nations, represents the conflict as the struggle between what he calls zero-sum nationalism and an emerging network of transnational enterprise webs. Yamashita uses magic realist techniques to envision the proliferation of these webs, um, but which she figures as an expanding symphony. That's the, the image she uses, uh, an expanding symphony that uh, of those I argue basically those sensitive to transnational complexity. Th- these are my readings here. It, the key thing is, in my view, just as Reich. Imagines a global free market comprised solely of human capital he He does use that phrase "yamashita imagines that this symphony can be comprised solely of conductors uh, so so it's a vision like righteous, which seems to depend on the disavowal of the difference that makes these collectives possible in the first place. The difference between performer and conductor, labor versus capital I contrast. Division in that novel, The Tropic of Orange, with Sessu Foster's Atomic Aztecs. Foster and Yamashita, they consider themselves friends uh, and collaborators. I, I nevertheless think that there's a kind of important difference between Tropic of Orange and Foster's book. I argue that S- Sessu Foster's Atomic Aztecs suggests that framing the conflicts faced by mi- Mexican migrants as epistemic conflicts is a mistake. And I say that because the book is an alternative history in which the Aztecs defeated the Spanish in non Western cultural and epistemic values of triumph in history. But at the same time, the violence of exploitation very clearly remains in that alternative history. However, in my reading, the novel also creates a different kind of alternative timeline, basically, a disruption of the linear narrative, uh, a new direction that opens up precisely because the main character, who is a worker in a mid-century meatpacking plant, he rejects his vision of an alternative history, uh, and instead he decides to lead a unionization drive back in our reality. So the, the film, Sleep Dealer, is another speculative borderland text, and like Atomic Aztecs, it ultimately, I argue, suggests that migrants create can create what I call an alternative future. I call it that rather than alternative history, They can create an alternative future if if they embrace a vision of the world defined by class conflict rather than epistemic conflicts. So I'm arguing that Atomic Essex and Sleep Dealer are both sort of making the same intervention in very different ways.
0: Your book's afterward is important to mention because of its broader evaluative focus and pulling some threads together. Can you talk about your contention as you put it that? Literary liberals have become both less interested in responding to postmodernism and more interested in responding to free market politics, including the centrist, communitarian version of this politics. You bring Ferris, Meyer, and Moore back into it to make a point about class, but your judgment falls squarely on the mainstream democratic storyline and the party itself your reference to Bronco Marcetic's 2020 Yesterday's Man, the case against Joe Biden, and what his term may foretell will be of much interest uh, to readers. And with Trump's uh, recent indictment, I was reminded of Ellis's uh, main character, Patrick Bateman, and all his Trump references in American Psycho. You end with a uh, hopeful uh, nod to writers and activists. Can you share more of your thinking to close the book?
1: Uh, sure. Um, so, in, in my afterword, I compared texts written before and after the 2008 financial crisis. You know, not that that is some magic transformative date, but because of the differences I see seem to indicate a shift in the interests of contemporary American novelists. Drawing on some work by Rachel Greenwald Smith and others, I argue that in the last 15 years or so contemporary writers have been less concerned with the tension between, you know, realism and experimentalism that the two post postmodern directions, the novels seem to be heading in the 1990s, they become sort of less concerned with that tension and just more willing to to simply mix and match stylistic elements as a matter of course, Uh, at the same time many novelists and critics have become much more explicitly concerned with issues of economic inequality in a way that seems to to mirror what's been happening in the culture at large, Uh, you know, where issues of economic justice, discussions of socialism have become much more mainstream. We are also in the middle of a wave of unionization drives amongst, you know, journalists, teachers, adjuncts, baristas, you know, and writers like Annie McClanahan, Gabe Wynott, uh, have argued that this is because the economic stagnation that has long afflicted the working class has caught up, especially since 2008, with the with the professional managerial class, and so that's why you're seeing these economic ideas, these sort of nods to socialism, start to appear much more in the cultural mainstream and in literature. I write that actually, I write this in the introduction. Um, In this sense, we can say that contemporary writers have reached a conclusion similar to that of Autopsy, the Democratic Party in Crisis, which was a report published by progressive activists to explain Hillary Clinton's defeat in the 2016 presidential election. Uh, They wrote, this is a long quote, the party has attempted to convince working class voters that it can advance the interests of the rich and working people with equal vigor. This sleight of hand was more feasible pre-2008 economic crash, but it has since lost credibility as inequality grows and entire communities are gutted by free market, anti-union, anti-worker ideology and policy. The champions of the growth raises all boats mythology had their chance and they failed the vast bulk of working Americans. So in other words, as they put it, quote, the mainstream democratic storyline of victims without victimizers lacks both plausibility passion. Now, so their suggestion is, of course, that this loss of faith in the old mainstream storyline has led to the emergence of new storylines, you know, from the politics of Donald Trump to the politics of Bernie Sanders. It's what the theorist Nancy Fraser describes, I mean, these are her terms, the rise of reactionary populism on one, one hand versus progressive populism on the other. However, Trumpism has also been described as simply neo- neoliberalism on steroids. And as you noted, as you kind of alluded to in your question, Trump was Patrick Bateman's favorite public figure, <laughs> and so his sort of uh, you know ascendancy, almost like seems like the sort of return of this uh, Bateman esque worldview, just writ, writ incredibly large, and. As marcetic argues in the book you mentioned in your question, you know, when, when Biden was elected, he was understood by many as the embodiment of precisely the kind of 90s neoliberalism I've been describing. So I think it's it's obviously an open question whether we've entered some new moment in the realm of electoral politics. Nevertheless, I make the case in my in my introduction, but also in my conclusion, that contemporary writers have embraced this need for new storylines they've started to reject a vision, I argue, you know, the vision where you can have victims without victimizers, you know, that you can have winners without losers. And so my introduction does end on, I guess I'd call it a semi hopeful note. Uh, So I'll just end with this. I'm going to quote myself, whether or not Biden's allegiances to the past actually translate into the left's gloomiest prophecies about the future, uh, namely that a Biden presidency will produce the rise of someone much worse than Trump. It seems likely that the gap between working-class Americans and the rich and powerful will continue to to widen. that is true, however, it it seems just as likely that contemporary writers and activists will continue to respond with stories of working-class solidarity and agency, ideological narratives and forms of subjectivity that will resonate culturally and perhaps even politically in ways they haven't in decades.
0: Thanks, Ryan. Let me follow up on some thoughts you shared earlier Uh, that you reject the notion uh, that the critics and authors you examine in your book seem to put forth. Namely, that any ideological alternatives to the neoliberal turn are somehow impossible. In a sense, concurring with the logic of Britain's Iron Lady, Margaret Thatcher, and her iconic assertion, there is no alternative referring to capitalism as the only viable economic system. Ellis ends American Psycho with reference to a door covered by drapes at the yuppie watering hole Harry's, above which reads, this is not an exit. And while the reference seems an even more literal one to Sartre's no exit, as you point out, the the message seems the same. How do you make sense of the possibilities and who is best articulating the alternative realities, or as you refer to them in your book, Ryan, alternative futures?
1: Yeah, um, thank you for that question. You know, in my reading, uh, ironically, I argue that, you know, the sign at End of American Psycho ultimately does not make that Thatcher point. Uh, It kind of, it it certainly seems to be inviting a reading like that. There is no exit, there is no alternative. I argue it ultimately does not make that point. You know, if her claim is it's widely sort of read, there is no alternative to capitalism, but which seemed to slide so easily uh, into, oh, really what I'm saying is there is no alternative to neoliberalism. uh, it's the it's the view that uh, the the critic, the late critic Mark Fisher famously described as capitalist realism to be realistic is to be neoliberal. i argue actually argue that uh, American psycho is not making that point. And I actually also argue it's not making the point that, you know, as some critics have read it, that there's no exit from this sort of postmodern hall of mirrors that there's no way to tell the difference between reality and ideological illusion i understand that reading the reading of you know american psycho as postmodern text and and you know in this in this instance for example as you said the sign the sign itself is a kind of intertextual reference it's a reference to sartre's no exit it's also a reference to magritte's this is not a pipe So in other words, it, it totally is in the novel, a sign pointing to other signs, which just point to other signs, which ad infinitum, you know, as if perhaps this suggests there's no way to break free from this postmodern hall of mirrors. And I think that certainly is how David Foster Wallace understood Ellis's work. He was a big critic of Freddison Ellis. It seems like he understood it as kind of being committed to this cynical postmodern indeterminacy you know, the inability to distinguish reality and illusion. This is, that's why I think Wallace was, again, so critical of Ellis. I I actually argue that the final scene of the novel, you know, when read as a whole, makes, makes almost like the opposite point. We see Bateman's friend Price come close to having an epiphany, uh, this moment of personal awakening, you know, on the inside, uh, as it's described. And it's specifically an epiphany about Ronald Reagan, and his inside, the sort of the question of what's his true character. So this scene is happening, and then, but then price is shut down. It, essentially Bateman tells him, quote, inside doesn't matter. And then then we get various other symbolic elements, and then we get the no exit sign. And I read this sequence, and you know, people can decide for themselves. I, I read this sequence as essentially Ellis saying, okay, what does or does not happen on the level of the purely personal, the, the internal. You know, whatever happens there, this is a collection of yuppies in a space materially distinct from and separate from the many, many poor people in the novel who would have been barred entry to this place. As if, you know, in my reading, the book is essentially insisting on this distinction between on one hand the you know the limited power of the purely personal transformation, the you know, i.e. the Reaganite, Clintonite, neoliberal version of transformation. It's as if it's insisting on there between that. And then the kind of transformation that would actually alter this basic material, spatial, economic opposition. The difference between the inside of Harry's and outside on the street, streets of New York. So I actually think in a paradoxical way, this that novel does kind of point to an exit. It does point to alternatives. And, and this is also why, just to refer to a question I answered earlier, but, but which you kind of you know, referenced again in the question you just asked, If I'm correct that a text like *Tropic of Orange*, you know, Karen Yamashita's 1997 novel actually reflects its historical moment, ideologically speaking, if you if you can draw a text between a 1990s anti-free trade text like that and a 90s pro-free trade text like Robert Reich's *Work Work of Nations*, if there is a kind of connection there, if I'm right about that, there is obviously a sense in which that novel is not truly a speculative as we might want to say, as we might want to claim, in the sense of it, it's not truly pointing to alternative ways of imagining the world. Again, to find an alternative like that, in my, in my view, is like you have to look at a text like Atomic Aztecs, which looks backwards to look forwards. It looks backwards to this mid-century unionization drive, but essentially frames this conflict in a way that boils down to, in my view, the, ten- the conflict between transnational capital and transnational labor, and that's something that I would imagine, or I would describe as being truly speculative—a a true attempt to kind of think in an alternative kind of way.
0: You know, as, as much as Powers' book game ha- has so much going for it, yet as you are, have already pointed out, it doesn't give, or it doesn't, it, it doesn't offer alternatives other than the vision of the system and the the two narratives that never really connect.
1: One thing I like to do is I try to think about like, what are these authors trying to do on their own terms? Certainly, you know, if we think of, you know, a speculative text, you can describe that as in a text to, an attempt to imagine what if, what are other possibilities? You know, Richard Powers, you know, a book like Gain, we might not describe it in the same terms. He embraces the language of the systems novel. And he's sort of the language of, I'm going to write a book that articulates the complexity of the world that that on some level articulates how things work that is an aesthetic goal that I believe he embraces and and my part of my claim is that if that is his goal I don't think he quite achieves that goal um, because I don't think he's articulating how these conflicts drive what happens as brilliant as that book is I feel like there is a kind of I guess I call it an ideological blind spot in the way that he's framing the way transnational corporate capitalism is working around the turn of the millennia.
0: Thanks, Ryan. Although there's so much more we could have discussed, I hope we've given listeners a feel for just how interesting the research behind your book is and some taste of the amazing lineup of authors and novels you assembled, explored, and contrasted as you compared the visions of Reaganite and Clintonian neoliberalism, its implications for literature and politics moving forward. As a final question for you, Ryan, uh, what books would you recommend for listeners wanting to immerse themselves into your world of critical literary studies?
1: Uh, Yeah, I'd definitely be happy to answer that question. Um, I would definitely recommend the work of all my mentors at UIC, whom I mentioned earlier, the the Michaels text that I ha- that had the most influence on me was called The Shape of the Signifier, 1967 to the End of History. Though I'd also recommend his 2015 book The Beauty of a Social Problem, and you know, anything he has written on neoliberalism. Mm. Uh, Michaels has collaborated a lot with the political scientist Adolf Reed Jr., whose 90s writing on Clinton were really useful for my book, and the two of them have a new collection of essays called. No Politics But Class Politics, that will be published in May 2023. Daniel Zamora is one of the co-editors of that collection, and the collection he co-edited on Foucault and neoliberalism, which is very critical of Foucault, um, was very useful for me as well. The peer-reviewed online website, nonsite.org, is a great resource for cultural scholarship, Produced by or influenced by or in some sense grappling with similar issues uh, as all those folks I just mentioned. I'd also want to mention um, Melinda Cooper's book Family Values uh, Between Neoliberalism and the New Social Conservatism, which is a great book to read and dialogue with Nancy Fraser's book The Fortunes of Feminism. They disagree about certain things, and I'm on Fraser's side of the debate, but Cooper's book is useful as a history of, for example, you know, the actual complexities of human capital discourse. Finally, two texts that I found really useful for articulating just what was new about the New Democrats, uh, or in other words, how 90s era liberalism was distinct from New Deal, great society liberalism are Janice Peck's The Age of Oprah, a cultural icon for the neoliberal era. Though Oprah herself only comes up once or twice in my book. Um, but that book is really useful. But also Eve Bertram's The Workfare State, public assistance politics from the New Deal to the New Democrats. The, both of those books were great for articulating the difference between New Deal, Great Society, Liberalism, and what the New Democrats believed. And Anne Clinton's sort of unique role within within that newer form of liberalism. So I'd recommend those.
0: Uh, thanks for sharing all that. Those interested in broadening and deepening their understanding of both the critical and literary aspects of contemporary American literature and its connection to what Mary Gates Gill referred to as our frantic twist to the right would do well to pick up Ryan Brooks' thoughtful and insightful book, Liberalism and American Literature in the Clinton Era, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. For that matter, you're well advised to listen to Ryan and his engaging podcast, Humanities on the High Plains, which offers a plethora of themes of both regional and national interest. Professor Ryan Brooks, thanks for being out there. Your students and podcast listeners are fortunate to have you doing what you do. Appreciate you sharing your insights and thoughts about so many things that matter today uh, with an added nuance that broadens perspectives in a supportive and engaging manner. Thanks also uh, for your reading recommendations, which uh, your new book, in a way, has its own version of fiction well worth engaging with as a way to illustrate the analysis in, again, your 2022 Cambridge University Press publication, Liberalism and American Literature in the Clinton Era. Thanks again, Ryan.
1: Thank you so much, Keith. I really appreciate that you took the time to listen to humanities on the high plains and i really appreciate the time you took looking at my book and inviting me here to to speak with you today it was a, it was a real honor <laughs>